1: Pope Francis says part of embracing God's mercy is to go through the pain of healing. That's what makes the act of being merciful so difficult because there's going to be a period of extreme, maybe even poignant, maybe even debilitating pain. And yet healing was only possible if we go through that process. So maybe some of these arrested and deferred conversations we are not having because we are afraid of the pain that they will cause, afraid of the pain of healing because we haven't really imagined a world where we have healed because there is something comforting about living in the now, in the conflict, in our own assumptions about others, in our own assumptions about the world, whatever side of the political spectrum you come from. There is a comfort in that. And when we challenge ourselves out of that comfort zone, out of those familiarities, we are in uncharted territory. And that's frightening. My name is Abdurrahman Malik, and I'm a modern minority.
2: but we're no one's model minority.
0: This is a show about all of you for all of us.
2: On today's show, we sit down for a chat with Abdul Rahman Malik, an award-winning journalist, educator, and cultural organizer. AR's work is at the intersection of faith and social change that has spanned the globe from Canada, the US, the UK, Pakistan, Sudan, Mali, Malaysia, Indonesia, and more. Abdul Rahman is currently a lecturer at the Yale Divinity School. He's director of the Muslim Leadership Lab at Yale's Dwight Hall Center of Social Justice. He's a veteran of BBC Radio, a contributing journalist. And he's also the host of the Aga Khan Museum's popular podcast, This Being Human. Basically modern minorities with a Muslim lens. It's That diminishes what a great show it is. It's all about stories that might not change the world, but understanding the storytellers that certainly can. Just a really really thoughtful guy. What do you think, Sharon? He was very thoughtful, and I could
0: literally listen to him speak forever. He approaches things with so much thought. He also has just a really great voice.
2: (laughs) (laughs) He should have a podcast.
0: (laughs) He should have a podcast. He should have a podcast. I like how he breaks down some pretty complicated and sophisticated concepts and theories and is able to make them very accessible to us today. And and I, I really enjoyed, I just, I feel like I learned a lot from talking to him and I really felt, walked away feeling inspired by his
2: point of view. Yeah. And you know, what's really interesting is how we discovered Rahman. So last year during our Ramadan month of episodes, we aired an episode with Azar Usman and one of our listeners who really took to the episode also happened to listen to uh, Abdul Rahman's podcast and said, you should totally talk to him. And it just, it took several months, but we were finally able to have a conversation. And gosh, I think you're really going to enjoy our chat with our new friend, Abdul Rahman. Abdul Rahman, it's so great to finally have you on the show. Thank you for joining us today.
1: It's a pleasure to be with both of you today.
2: Thank you. So you can be known as somewhat infamous. So I guess the first question we want to know is, where are you from?
1: (laughs) This is a great question, right? Because when Sharon and Roman ask it, it's like, that's a cool question. I'm down (laughs) with that question. When, you know, someone else asks it, I'm like, I'm like, where are you coming from? What do you mean by that question? <laughs> right, I was in right. a meeting with a with a group of of black Muslim students here at Yale just last week, and they had a really interesting way of asking each other this question. Mm-hmm. They would say, "Tell us where you're from," and then us then tell us where you're from from.
0: Right, right, totally. And I
1: love that. And so everyone would say, "Yeah, I'm from Bronx, New York," but I'm from from Nigeria, Ghana. Togo, Mali, I kind of appreciated that. So I was born in Toronto, Canada. My mother was born in Pakistan, but like my father's family, her family was from India before the line of partition was drawn. So my mother's family is actually from a place in the Punjab called Jalandhar, and and my father's family is from the great city of Amritsar. And both families moved around the time of partition in 1947, to, to what is now what is now Pakistan so my my mother's family went from Jalandhar to a city called Rawalpindi which is where my mother was born and my father's family eventually went from Amritsar to a city called Multan in sort of south central Punjab a very very famous city a city known yeah, as the, yeah. the city of saints and it has it's this kind of this amazing place that's incredibly hot incredibly dusty and incredibly holy because there's so many Sufi saints who are buried yeah on its soil and there's three incredible tomb structures actually on what is known as the old old fortress hill of the city that i used to visit when we used to visit when i was in pakistan when i was younger i mentioned the Punjab because i i think as i've gotten older this question of like where you're from from mm-hmm. has not necessarily gotten more complicated Complicated, but has certainly gotten deeper because I really do see myself in so many ways as connected to not only our particular Muslim families, mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. also to the story of migration, but mm-hmm. also to this story of the Punjab, this incredible land fertile, mm-hmm. sacred, mm-hmm. holy, but also the home to the Muslim faith, the Hindu faith, but particularly the Sikh faith, which mm-hmm. has been so yeah. associated, of course, with Punjabi language and, and heritage. And and I've found it's it's so interesting meeting people from the Punjab who's crossed those religious lines, but the Punjabiness is such a uniting experience <laughs> factor. You I know I'm just, Punjabi, right? Uh, are you? Okay, there you go. <laughs> so, so this this, this, this I, is it. I, I feel I, like
0: now is a good time for me to be like, okay, guys, I'll catch you later. No, right, right, Sharon, this is when you to ask
2: all the dumb questions. <laughs> no, because first of all, Roman, I, I feel like you're reading over my shoulder at night because my dad, Born in Lahore during the Partition, fled to Delhi, raised Hindu. I'm literally obsessively researching the Partition. We'll talk more offline about that. But the, the three cities you just name dropped are Jalandhar <laughs> and Ralpindi, Oh, pretty infamous in the story of Partition. I mean, without really getting are. into it, like I'm just so intimately familiar with everything that happened in those three cities right now because of all my reading and research. Mm. I guess the the question back to that a little, and you know, it's funny you talk about from from. I think there's from, from, and there's from, 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 because like, hmm. I'm from New York, if you ask me, but all my friends from Alabama get really mad at me that I don't own up to being born and raised in the South. I'm from New York. I'm from, from Alabama. I think I'm from, from, from India, by way of Africa and <laughs> England, my parents' migration chain, right? Because I, I think it's like the most froms is your heritage. I feel like your from, from is probably deformative years, so to speak, right? Like things mm-hmm. you identify, those kind of childhood memories. But I, I strongly believe in from, the first from. When you ask me where I'm from, it's like, well, I, I live in that town. That's where mm-hmm. I pay my taxes. That's the community I'm part of. And I think there's a lot of
1: pushback on that first from mm-hmm. in general. That's such an interesting way of seeing it. And I, I can resonate with that because part of what I think about is, is where we are present and how we are present and so, in some ways, you know, my from should be New Haven, Connecticut, where I am now. I think in so many ways, we've been accultured by the question, "Where are you from?" To think of origin story, right? Yeah, yeah, we're, yeah. we're we're so accustomed by having been asked that question so much while we were growing up, right, in our state of difference or apparent difference, that someone when they someone asked us that question, it meant they were digging for that answer of deeper deeper roots. Yeah, yeah, And, and, and I think that it's interesting the way that you answer it really sort of kind of, you know, dissents against the, against <laughs> that question. You're, you're, you're kind of saying, no, I am going to define that question as a question of where my presence is now. But well, well, what's, what's interesting though, is the
2: pushback mm-hmm. I get most in my life because of that answer is actually from all my Alabama friends, because, mm-hmm. you know, I really, I wanted to get out my whole life. A lot of them are still there or not there, but proud of their heritage from there. And my parents still live there. But that, to me, it's like disowning your childhood. And I'm like, I'm not. I just, I chose to move up here. Like, I would Mm. argue the from and the from, from, from are the two bookends that I care more about, even though you could argue the formative years where you actually spent your youth, you rode your bike, you went to the comic book store, all that stuff is probably more important. Mm.
1: You know, I was having this conversation with a friend recently and they they were asking about what's your hometown? Oh. And that I felt forced me to answer the from question a little bit differently mm-hmm. because I was born in, in Toronto and I had so many of my formative experiences in Toronto. My parents still live in, in, in suburban Toronto. It's where I go to uh, my home as in the home in which I grew up in. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But I would say that most of my formative experiences, the experiences that I can now look back on and said made me the person I am today actually happened in, in, in London, England, a city that I began to visit from 1995 onwards, and eventually, after I, I I met my better half and we got married, I, I like a good Muslim husband followed my wife to her hometown and ended up in London, England, the city of her birth, but not the city in which she grew up. She grew mm-hmm. up in in Singapore, and so in some ways, London for me is like my spiritual hometown. Mm-hmm. You know, yes. it's the city where I became fully my, myself. And when I left London in 2017 to come to New Haven, Connecticut, it was only supposed to be for a few months, and it's now been over four years. I knew when I was leaving there that I was ready to leave. I was ready to to take a step out of this city, not like I hadn't stepped out of the city. I travel a lot. I work in various parts of the world, but it felt like a, a different type of a move. It felt like, okay, it's, it's time for another chapter. I didn't quite know at the time what that chapter was, but it, it did feel like a move away. But I, But I won't lie to you, when I think about the place that made me. In so many ways, I go to London before I go to Toronto or anywhere else. And in some ways, that relationship with London has become more poignant during the pandemic. One of the reasons why London was so important to me was that in 1995 I I met someone who became a, an older brother a, a father figure a, a mentor a friend someone who I I worked closely with for for 25 years and he passed away in the first weeks of the pandemic in March mm. 2020 and his name was Fuad Nahdi, an incredible journalist and a uh, world traveler and and kind of one of these amazingly global personalities who's hard to pin down, you know, a Yemeni of of Kenyan and Indonesian heritage, grew up in Nairobi, you know, traveled the world during the heady days of the late 1970s, ended up as a journalist in London in the 1980s, started these incredible publications and it was through one of those publications that I met him in in, in 1995. So I think in some ways, the pandemic has forced me to really think about this question of the places that make you, the places that shape you and the relationships in those places that shape you. And in many ways, that's taken me back in my heart to London, because I I recognize that so much happened over the time that London became a, a, a city in my life of importance that 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 in some ways it's it really is like the geography that mm-hmm. I that I return to in my heart as the place that really made me. This is also actually um, a a kind of a, a colonial holdover because my 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 <laughs> you father, said it when I was thinking it. <laughs> my my father was in London in the late 1960s and yeah. you know he'd graduated from the University of Punjab. My my father wanted to be an artist, but but actually went to the College of Commerce at the University of Punjab in, in, in Lahore, and, and eventually did his Master's of Commerce degree in, in London. And he was in London at that heady time in the late 60s, you know, where political foment was was there all around the world. He had been part of a political movement in Pakistan, and he was deeply engaged in the kind of the global diasporic, mm-hmm. you know, post-colonial liberation mm-hmm. conversations that were happening in a city like London, because London, while it was this colonial capital, was also the place where so like many- It was the New
2: York City of the 60s, yeah.
1: Exactly. The anti-colonial, the decolonial discussions were happening. It was where, where intellectuals, revolutionaries- dissenters and visionaries were gathering. And my dad found himself in those spaces, at those rallies, in those protests. He uh, backpacked through Europe during the fabled summer of 1969 and was witness to the student uprisings. So in some ways, I grew up with the idea of London being this dynamic city, the city of, of, of revolution and the city of ideas and the city where people were thinking great thoughts. And, and I'm sure that has something to do with the reason why I always wanted to go and experience the city and maybe uh, the, some of the reasons why it felt so comfortable even before I arrived and how comfortable I felt when I arrived there.
0: Yeah. I I spent a summer in London and one of my first impressions of it stepping off the plane was how witty they were about everything <laughs> because i was i was studying advertising and marketing and looked at all of the billboards all around and it was like literally everything around me was it just seemed so much more sophisticated and intellectual and they just had just a completely different it, it is a richness in culture and creativity it's just so wonderful
1: And and Sharon, you know, the other thing that I found, and and, and it was one of the things I immediately noticed when I first went as a 20-year-old in 1995, was that here was a city that was hyper diverse, hyper cosmopolitan, but where people wore their identities on their sleeve with this kind of brash confidence, you know, you went down to Brixton, and you were hanging out with the Afro-Caribbean community and with Jamaicans and Trinidadians and people from the islands. And they were like, they were like holding court they were speaking the way they spoke they were thinking the way they thought they were reading their own writers and they were p- placing that right in front of you you know you went to south hall to the punjabi community and they were just punjabi big p right yeah yeah and yeah. it was it was right. all out there in the music and it was the first time that you know i'd kind of skipped the, the day jams of the early 1990s <laughs> you know and in, in toronto but all of a sudden all my senses were assaulted in the best possible way by bhangra music and this Lively scene that was happening in London. And as a Muslim, boy, I had never experienced Muslim identity so confidently on display. And I think the big debate at the time. In the 90s, and one of the reasons why my relationship with my mentor and friend, Fouad Nahdi, I think, became cemented so fast was that as as a 20-year-old, I was thinking about these questions of what does it mean to be a Muslim in Canada, a Muslim in the diaspora, a Muslim in the West, so to speak. And here I went to the United Kingdom, London in particular. And there was this kind of boldness about like, we are Muslim, and we are Bengali, and we are Pakistani, and Mm -hmm. we are Egyptian, and we are Syrian, and we are Jamaican, and we belong and we're British. (laughs) <laughs> and and part of the debate yeah. of course that was happening within Muslim communities at that time was what does it mean to be a British Muslim this was just in the aftermath of the Salman Rushdie affair where all of a sudden a confident public religious identity like being Muslim was now on trial it was on trial in the media it was on trial by the literati it was on it was on trial in the opinion pages i mean he had a fatwa exactly and and, and i think what the fatwa did was obviously focus the conversation, but in a way, you know, I, I find the whole fatwa thing thing so intriguing because if you read Rushdie, Rushdie is precisely addressing these issues, right, about post coloniality and belonging, and what does it mean to be this creature who belongs to so many places at the same time. The fatwa was the best thing that could have happened for him. I hate to say that, but
2: it's, I think it's shown a light. You whatever your point of view on him was, you had to have a point of view on him. And that just kind of leveled up the awareness.
1: Absolutely. And it made the book and his work and his ideas truly international conversation. It's on his
2: LinkedIn now. I had a fatwa. Read my next book.
1: <laughs> you know, it's, it's interesting. At the beginning of the Satanic Verses, in the first edition, the edition that I had read, yeah. there was this uh, quote from, from Daniel Defoe, I believe, the author. And it said that the curse... That God put on the devil was that the devil could not place his foot in the same place twice. And in many ways, what Rushdie in his writing was talking about was that the same curse that Defoe said was put on the devil was the same curse that was put on the immigrant. That the immigrant in some ways, once moving, had to constantly be moving, had to constantly be dancing, had to constantly be a chameleon and change to the circumstances that they found themselves in. And I won't lie to you, that sensibility really struck a chord with me mm-hmm. in Rushdie's writings in particular. This this idea that the move, that that once you move, it's like you're always moving. And you know This this really hit me hard when I thought about the experiences, for example, of my maternal grandmother, God rest Mm -hmm. her soul, who passed away a few years ago in her nineties. Because you know we talk about partition, Mm -hmm. she was one member of the family who experienced. The whole brunt of partition, you know, her story being a teenage bride, you know, living in a village outside of Jalandhar City, and being told that violence was coming their way, and that they had to leave that day. And she had a stepson who was nearly half her age, and getting him ready, and joining the rest of the family and joining that infamous caravan whose stories are now written in history books of those who are heading to the border and eventually heading towards Lahore to to life in this new land and leaving everything behind. You know, I realized over the years, particularly as I and my sisters and my younger brother, who didn't live in Pakistan, would go back to Pakistan and we'd ask questions about partition. The rest of the family and other members of the family would say, why are you bringing up those memories? Why are you asking those questions? But we asked those questions rather boldly and found that in the answers of our grandmother, was a continuing trauma of that experience, that that it happened so long ago, but she never left it because it was so profound. And you recognize that in that movement of being a refugee, but even in that movements of any type of migration, there's something that happens to you. There's a change that takes place in you. And you now have a different perspective on the world. And I think I I'd like to kind of see it as a superpower, right? <laughs> in a kind of a midnight's children sort of way to to bring us back to Rusty for a moment. You know, all of these children in his novel who are born at the hour of midnight each have a particular superpower. Yeah, yeah. I would say that the migrant, the one who moves, the refugee has a superpower. And the superpower is to have their two feet in four places at the same time. To, I mean this is beyond code switching, right? Yeah. It is the ability to exist in different cognitive frames, different geographies, different ideas, different spiritual traditions, different philosophies, all at the same time, and to be able to negotiate that. Wow, that's an incredible thing, isn't it?
2: It is. I, I have just so many loaded thoughts and questions about the partition. I didn't know we were going to take the conversation in this direction, but I something I'm really struggling with it's something I've known about my entire life because of my dad's history with it. But there's this whole generation of people who don't want to talk about it, right? It's the mm. memories are too real, too painful. Literally, as I read some oral histories and people are finally in the past, call it, decade, starting to kind of share their stories at the end of their lives. But other things that happened, right? Mao's China, Russian famine, the Holocaust. Mm. There's so much more known history Outside of the walls. And I think it's just kind of like the state secret almost, or this we don't, it happened to us, we don't talk about it, we don't need to talk about it on a world stage. And that's why most people don't know. And Mm. I see so many parallels, not necessarily the causes, the colonial causes of the partition. And, you know, we don't need to like litigate, you know, Jinnah and Nehru and Gandhi, Mm -hmm. you know, all of them. But people like to say it was a madness, like that it just took over. But that's kind of a rude thing to say. I there were kind and this is this is I promise I'm not getting tinfoily on you. There were there were forces at work, a lot of people who came back from a war with a lot of training, who had an agenda and who decided to be louder. And this is something we're facing in our own country right now mm-hmm. in America. And louder voices taking the megaphone and like whipping up kind of extreme points of view. Hmm. versus where I think a lot of people just kind of want to live and let live there's I think there's just a clear line and there's a clear lesson and I don't I think because we don't know about it because we don't talk about it it's one of those history things that
1: we're just not going to learn from, and we're going to keep making mistakes. there are kind of really interesting kinds of hatreds that fester because of that, right? Yeah, yeah. These, These kind of sensibilities about the other that fester. Part of that is traumatic experience, right? Which you then place on the backs of a certain group. Some of those are acts of violence, which you totalize and stop seeing the context around them, and also the other acts of violence that were taking place. You sort of erase some of them. Yeah. And you focus on others. I think what's happening today in the Punjab, and, and like you said, you know, not to dwell on it too much, but I think that this is an important lesson for all of us, both of you, myself, so many others who are really, you know... In some ways, thinking about but also engaging in the fault lines political, social, economic, religious that we see that we see around us um, it's, so, it's
2: to be clear, it's something Americans need to be thinking about
1: absolutely yeah yeah yeah. Absolutely. And one of the things that I've seen, and I, it, it, you know, <laughs> incidentally, I was in a cab on, on Friday with my son in New York City, and the cab driver was Punjabi Sikh. And, and we started talking and I, I told him, you know, and my dad's family yeah, from Umaritsar, and, yeah, yeah, yeah. and my mother's family is from Jalandhar. And he started telling me about his story. His, his family too had moved from what is now Pakistan Punjab to Indian Punjab, and we had mm. come the other way. But he spent the 20-minute cab ride telling me about his experiences of visiting the birthplace of Guru Nanak, which is on the Pakistan side of the Punjab border. And I'm sure you guys know this, but for our listeners, there has been a really concerted effort by the governments of Punjab on the Indian side and on the Pakistan side to create corridors for religious tourism, for Sikhs to come to Pakistan and to visit some of the most important and holiest sites of their faith with a great deal of freedom. And he was describing the experiences of two weeks of being a pilgrim, in Pakistan and visiting the holy sites. And, and, you know, he was driving the car and he started to cry. And he said that he said that coming to Pakistan for him was like meeting brothers and sisters that he didn't even know. He said the love that he was shown, the affection that he was shown, he says, that it will stay with him. And he said that, that who are we? He says our language is the same. He says our pedigree is the same. He said even the things that we consider holy, because we know that the holy book of the, the Sikhs, the Guru Granth Sahib, has, is, is filled with passages of the Punjabi Sufi poets who came mm-hmm. from Muslim traditions. He says the things that we consider holy are the same. So what is it? What happened that left us like this? He says, he says I don't want to talk about politics. I just want to live with the feeling that I had as a pilgrim in Pakistan yeah, yeah. who was greeted with such joy. And he says, whenever I meet my Punjabi brothers from anywhere, that's the way I, I engage with them. And I, I too was really moved by that story because I, I felt like it's this human to human contact. And isn't, isn't this what we're doing here? Isn't it what we're doing in our own respective lives and work, right? How do we create those pathways for human beings to meet human beings with all of our complexity and fold back fold back the layers. And while we don't leave aside our traumas, of course, we imagine as my friend, Mark Gonzalez, the, the, the futurist and, and, and visionary talks about, he says, we have to know the traumas we've been through, but we have to be able to imagine our world, our lives beyond trauma. What does that look like? What is a place beyond trauma Look like, and I think that is often even in the conversations of today. And I'm on a university campus, right, where there's a lot of conversation about hurt and about trauma and the long standing effects of those things. Part of the challenge to myself and to my students, those who I work with, is is there a way for us to imagine a world, a life, an experience beyond trauma? And and I think and I think that is a hard question. It's a hard question to imagine that, because sometimes the hurt is really great. And sometimes, like Pope Francis spoke about in his incredible book called The Name of God is Mercy, he speaks about this issue, and I think maybe maybe slightly controversially, but it, it struck a chord with me when he mentioned it. And he says something to paraphrase like this. He says, he's one of the things to know about pain and hurt Pope Francis talks about is that When you have a wound, what is the way in which we heal that wound? And he said that sometimes when an animal is hurt and they're wounded and their wound is open and it's bleeding, they lick it again and again, right? To give it some balm, to give it some comfort, to try and clean it. And yet we know the more you lick it and the more you make it moist and and the more you add saliva and bacteria to it, it's going to fester. It's going to grow. So he says part of embracing God's mercy is to go through the pain of healing, is to allow that wound to heal. Mm. He says that is also part of mercy. And he says that's what makes the act of being merciful to oneself and to others so difficult. Because there's going to be a period of extreme, maybe even poignant, maybe even debilitating pain. And yet, and yet, Healing was only possible if we go through that process. So, so maybe some of these you know, arrested conversations and deferred conversations are conversations that we are not having because we are afraid of the pain that they will cause. And we are actually afraid of the pain of healing because actually mm-hmm. we haven't really imagined a world where we have healed. Because there is something comforting about living in the now, in the conflict, in our own assumptions about others, in our own assumptions about the world, whatever side of the political spectrum you come from. There is a comfort in that. And when we challenge ourselves out of that comfort zone, when we challenge ourselves out of those familiarities, we are in uncharted territory. And that's frightening.
0: Yeah. Are is there a moment that comes to mind when you've been in a situation where you've had to completely be challenge yourself to be out of your comfort zone, whether that be in London or any time after that?
1: I think there's been a, there's been so many moments, Sharon. Um there's one, one moment that I, that, that I think about. I, I'm involved in an ongoing storytelling project which started in Indonesia. It was called the Cafe Charita, the Cafe of Stories. And uh, three friends, my, myself being one of them, came together. One Indonesian friend, a fellow Canadian transplanted to London, and myself came together a few years ago at the request of our friend from Indonesia to think about how we might engage with incidents of interreligious violence that were happening in Indonesia. Hmm. And unfortunately, over the last number of years, there's been this merging of, of alt right and religious zeal in certain political quarters of the Indonesian body politic that have resulted in attacks on churches, on Hindu temples, mandirs, and on, on Buddhist temples.
2: Of like the wave of nationalism in any given country,
1: exactly, and also this this fusing of nationalism with a kind of, almost like a, a religious justification. You yeah, know? yeah, yeah, <laughs> that, yeah. That's kind of we we create kind of a religious mood music for this nationalism. And one so could we say a crusade. <laughs> uh, one could, exactly, one could say a crusade, as they say. Sometimes we learn from our masters, right? And so so this project in Indonesia was about working in five what we called sort of conflict cities and cities there had been major incidents of interreligious violence and and to work with really grassroots leaders. And when I say grassroots, I, I need to I need to paraphrase that because it's it's almost a euphemistic phrase, right? We're working with grassroots leadership now. The leaders that we worked with were young people mostly who ran things like soccer clubs who ran reading circles in their school, who ran like local church youth groups. In cities like Yogyakarta and Jakarta and Bandung, cities are often organized into laneways. And these laneways are these amazingly vibrant stretches of life, you know? Often there'll be a mosque there, there'll be a school there, there'll be a community center there, there'll be a church there, or a a mandir or or a Buddhist temple, depending on the population. And, you know, people really live in that laneway. And so we had all these young people who were really engaged in their own local neighborhoods and laneways. And working with a a remarkable organization based in Jakarta called the Habibi Center, we were able to, in these five conflict cities, in each of these cities, gather about 30 young leaders and some older people. And half of them were Muslim and half of them were from religious minorities in Indonesia. And we essentially were doing a program, a bit of a a train-the-trainers program, to provide some tools, some approaches to storytelling and embodying story that would allow these young people to engage in their own communities on really difficult issues about what it means to be Indonesian together beyond the fault lines of ethnic, linguistic, religious, and regional difference. And our hope was that in creating almost these cohorts of storytellers, that they would take these skills, and some of them were embodied storytelling taken from the work of Augusto Boal and the Theater of the Oppressed, because in a previous life, I was a history and drama teacher, and all my drama education came from the tradition of Augusto Boal, because my own mentors, when I became a teacher, were, were Boalian. So in a way, I learned political theater and embodied theater as part of my teaching practice. And so we were able to take some of that and and really engage in like difficult issues through embodied storytelling, drama and play and tableau and freeze frame and and games that Boal had suggested that really take us into kind of deep places about our positionality with ourselves and with others. We were using some of the public narrative work of Marshall Gantz to tell the story of of self and and, and us. And my, my friend, Stephen Shashua, Who's a who's like a, a my Iraqi Jewish Canadian brother? He worked in an innovative interfaith organization in the UK for over ten years, and he would do kind of deep dialogue and, and identity work. And so we were able to mash this all together into like a three-day program. At the end of which, each of our participants would tell this incredible story of self, but they would work with someone from another faith tradition to tell a new story of us. And it was a powerful process, and it's work that still continues. In one of our cities that we went to, and I believe it was Malang, I remember we came into the first day of training, and it was this wonderful, you know, group of of young people, all super excited. And, and we often did our work through translation. So, you know, we would say something our fellow master facilitators who are Indonesian would say, and we'd have this kind of great back and forth, and the, and the room was always alive. There was one young woman there who I noticed the moment that she came in, she was, um, yeah, I couldn't read her, and and she seemed really shy and distant, and not shy in a way that I usually don't participate, but kind of like I'm not sure if I belong here. And I particularly felt like with me, there was this sense of I, I could see there was there was there there was a suspicion, and I didn't know how to name it at that point, but I could see that every time I got up and spoke, she almost recoiled, and you know. I'm not used to that, right? I'm I'm a pretty gregarious person. I think of myself as a pretty good facilitator. I can usually make connections with people, but it just wasn't happening, you know? And I was thinking to myself, like, is there something I've done? Could I have run this a different way? And then we got into the embodied storytelling and the scenario that I give, to the participants is that we imagine what happened in the aftermath of one of these attacks on a church in particular. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so the groups break up and they literally embody (coughs) reaction from the local Muslim community, reaction from the church community, reaction from the police, the reaction from the media. And then one group I choose to think about the why. Why would someone do an act of violence against a place of worship, right? It forces them in a way to go inside the heads of those who committed this act of violence. And this young woman ended up in that group. And the group, all the groups were powerful, but that group in particular that day was particularly powerful. Because in some ways, they surprised me by the level of compassion even that they had by the how far they were willing to go to try and understand why someone would commit an act of violence, why someone would hate, why someone would disrupt an Easter service, right, where people were just praying? And and the conversation that ensued was so powerful that that I think all of us in the room were really moved to tears by the way that they tried to understand why people would do what they did. And as the session was ending, and to your question, Sharon, this young woman stood up and, and said, I, I need to say something before we conclude, because we'd conclude every day with a meal. And we'd all sit together on the floor, and we'd all be together and, and eat together and talk together and share food together. And she said, you know what, when I came in here today, I looked at you and she pointed at me. And she goes, I was scared and I was disgusted. She says, I was scared because you look exactly like the people who attacked my church. And she was in that church when it was attacked. And she goes, I was disgusted because I couldn't imagine someone like you leading a session like this. And I thought I should just leave. But she goes, you know, I thought that might be embarrassing. So I've I've decided to stay, you know. And she says, as I've been through the day, and particularly in that last activity that we did, I felt somehow that you had picked me for that group because you knew where I was coming from, and I hadn't. It had been almost entirely random. She says, you know, like you were asking me to kind of understand why people did this to my community. And she said, I'm so glad you did. Because since it happened, I had just haven't been able to think about the reasons and all of a sudden these people who did this became human to me and i think i'm leaving today with more understanding and more confidence of who i am and what i believe than i that i did when i walked in and it was you know it was it was amazing everyone kind of hugged it out and it was kind of a beautiful moment and i knew there was more to the story and there was more to the story. And, and, and I'll finish the story because I think the epilogue to it is, is probably the most important part of it. She was a Christian who'd grown up in a largely Muslim neighborhood. And all of her life, she had grown up hearing the call to prayer from her local mosque. And she had grown up experiencing all of her friends who were Muslim go to the Quran school at the mosque and learn to recite the Quran. And she loved the recitation of the Quran. She said it was so musical that she asked her parents and the local Quran teacher if she could join in on the lessons. And she said, I used to learn how to recite the Quran because I loved it so much. I loved the melodious tone in which the Arabic was recited. And she said, on the day that our church was attacked, it was those very words, those very verses that the people who attacked our church were yelling when they ran into the church. Mm -hmm. And she says, I just could not understand that something that I had thought of so beautiful my whole life could sound so ugly to me. And, you know, it really made me think about the deep stories that people hold and have. Right the experiences that we have with with beauty and of the other. And in places like Indonesia, where, uh, where, where sameness and otherness is so wrapped up, it's such a complicated, beautiful, remarkable place. You know, it really hit me and it forced me to think about, you know, like like we go in the world, of course, being ourselves. Everyone says, be yourself. You know, you're not representative of anyone. Mm-hmm. And yet the moment that I choose as part of my public identity to be Muslim, right? to do things that are guided by my faith tradition, that are guided by my morals, my ethics, my values, which come from many places, but are deeply rooted in in, in my faith. In some ways, I do go into the world as that person, and I'm being watched as that person. And you realize that I owe it to my own highest values to try and aspire to live the most beautiful life that I can. Not only for myself, but for for the world that I interact with, because everything is relational. Everything is about the way in which we learn and interact and see one another. And that's not to place the burden of representation on anyone. That's me saying to myself that this is something that I have to be really aware of. It also reminded me, and and, you know, it kind of pushes you, right? We have to allow human being, being a human being is hard, being compassionate is really hard, being merciful is really hard. You know, the, the Karen Armstrong once famously said, when asked why she had dedicated these latter years of her life to this thing called the Charter of Compassion. He says, you know, compassion, such an easy thing. Empathy, compassion, mercy. These are words that are so easy, you know, so easy. What, what, what are you doing that's hard? And she goes, I do compassion because it's hard. It's the hardest thing to do. It's the hardest thing to be compassionate and merciful to those who have done evil and wrong, right? And yet to see humanity and to think about a world where we, beyond the hatred, beyond the trauma, beyond the hurt, that's compassion. That's the the, the the medan, the field of compassion that we want to get to. You know, Rumi often speaks about that field, right? That place beyond that we're trying to get to. And And that incident really made me like kind of reframe and to really think about, you know, we we offer all these tools and we're good facilitators and we're we're awesome at what we do. And of course, we're dealing with real people and and their stories are deep, as deep as our stories are, which recommits me to the idea of stories and particularly the storyteller, which I think is is so important. We are all storytellers. We're all telling these narratives. And isn't life like about stories meeting story? Right, and the alchemy that happens when your story and my story meet each other, and sometimes it's it's uncomfortable. Sometimes it, it, it just fits, but most of the time it's a negotiation.
2: It, it feels like that story in itself. It's the lead into what you do every week, every day. You have a podcast, this being human, you know, produced by the Aga Khan Museum. And I was trying to look up the name, and you talk about at the beginning of the podcast the the Persian poet Rumi and mm-hmm. the guest house and. This idea of being human as a guest house. and can you talk about the? I hate to shortcut it, but that the show is effectively, you know, amplifying Muslim voices. I I hate to call it the modern minorities, the Muslim version of modern minorities. is Much better than that. It's much more artfully done than this thing that we're doing right now. But what is the meaning, like? Ooh, What's the purpose of that show? It it, it, it is it almost unpacks it from the story you just told from that Rumi poem, right? Yeah. Can you can you talk about that? The well, reason well, for first, being or what you're trying to change in the world? Well, with first, the show? First,
1: first, first, I'm honored to have this being human sit alongside your amazing podcast and just the incredible conversations that you have on here. I hope we we all belong in that same ecosystem of, of storytellers and, and as my friend Stephen likes to say, archaeologists of the human well, experience. Dude, <laughs> I,
2: I, I seriously think, I mean, audio, not just podcasting, but audio storytelling is much more intimate and visceral, believe it or not, oh. than I think cinema, and even uh, film or novel, because someone's talking in your ear, and over time you become friends with these people that are you're listening to them, you're subscribed to them. Totally. And I think if more people be it about the black experience, the, the LGBTQ experience, the Islamic experience. I, I think if, if my fear that I've gotten to arguments with, quote unquote, other Asian podcasters is if you're doing an Asian podcast for Asian audiences, I guess that's good. That's kind of patting yourself on the back. Like, I want a non-Muslim person listening to this conversation that we're having mm-hmm. right now. I want a straight person listening to our conversation about queer identity and why it's important that Robin is bisexual right like uh, until we start hearing to your point there are other people's stories and intermixing what we have in common and what we don't have in common i and and I think audio storytelling and podcasting is kind of that like it jacks right into your brain, like jacks right into the matrix, so to speak.
1: So I, I, I totally agree. And I think what, what both of you are doing here by taking us into those places is is exactly that, is forcing us to confront not only another story, but in confronting another story, we are always confronting ourselves, right? Absolutely. Because yeah. you, you imagine yeah. yourself
2: in this conversation. yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, you
1: know. We're looking into that mirror constantly. And in some ways, this being human really emerged out of a very long conversation that happened between a group of journalists and cultural programmers and the Aga Khan Museum, thinking about what a podcast, you know, hosted by the museum and supported by some really wonderful philanthropic personalities would sound like and and, and be like. And we went through a number of iterations with it, but it was actually our executive producer, Lisa Gabriel, who suggested this title of of This Being Human, and it was based on the, the, the poem by Rumi, which is translated as The Guest House. And, you know, it begins with this line, this being human is like a guest house. And it goes on to describe... All of the joys, the happiness, the pain, the trauma, the hate, the difficulty, the pain, the sickness, the health that comes into one's life and how we deal with it. And and Rumi is telling us, welcome them all welcome them all into your home, watch them sweep out your rooms of all of its content, you know, embrace them as they come in, because his contention as a Sufi, as a deep, intimate lover of God, is that these have been sent as a guide from beyond, that each of these moments of joy and of pain that we experience in life are moments that teach us. And in a way, what we're doing with the podcast is really engaging with the you know we call it the kind of kind of you know euphemistically the the kaleidoscope of the muslim experience but really looking at what does this thing called the muslim cultural ecosystem, right? Because in that ecosystem, there are people who are Muslim and people who are not Muslim, people who have grown up in Islamic cultures and civilizations, who have grown up adjacent and with Muslim communities, who have found art forms that have that found their genesis within Muslim societies. There are those who have who have come to a realization of their of their own calling through hip hop or through jazz or through music that itself was made by people who had Muslim beliefs or background or were informed by that that experience. So in the podcast, we've had folks who are confessionally Muslim, culturally Muslim, people who uh, don't call themselves Muslim at all, but are deeply embedded in the Muslim cultural experience. And, And the joy of the podcast really has been in so many ways to really tell deep stories, as both of you do, about people and what makes them tick, what makes them create beautiful art, what makes them draw cartoons, what makes them produce music, what What makes them, and in, the, in one of the episodes that I like so much about our podcast is that we interviewed the founder of the Muslim Mamas Network on Facebook. This is a group that was founded by Nargis Jahanuddin in the aftermath of a very difficult pregnancy where she felt terribly alone, unprepared, was suffering, didn't know how to handle it, went on Facebook and said, I am having a bad time. Are there other people who are having a bad time? Let's talk about it. And that call into the ether has eventually become a gathering of, of moms, of, of Muslim background that now numbers over 130,000 mm-hmm. with an active core group of nearly 30,000. And to hear the kind of things that they do and talk about, th- there's now women off of that group who have developed uh, domestic violent intervention programs. There are those who are supporting one another through the debates over vaccination. There are those who are supporting one another through family crisis and trauma. There are women there who are helping one another start businesses and and create economies that fit into their communities and their life and to have an opportunity to interview Nargis and to talk about her upbringing in in East London how she got there right right exactly and and being the first the first woman to go to the London School of Economics or any university from her family and the role that her granddad played and what her mother these are these were powerful stories for me to listen to and to be able to give life to and the most exciting feedback that I ever get from a, from a podcast. The stuff that really gets me excited is when someone writes and says, you surprised me. Mm-hmm. You surprised me. I never thought that such a person was possible, let alone such a, a conversation was possible. And I've heard that so many times, uh, Sharon and Roman, I've heard that so many times that people are like, I connected with that. I'm not a woman. I'm not Muslim. I yeah. know very little yeah. about Islam, but I came across your podcast and then I listened to 10 episodes. And thank you. <laughs> thank you for that, because I feel like you've opened a, a kind of, a, you, you've given me an entree into a part of the human experience that I, I previously hadn't even considered. And I think to my own experiences, and, and I'm sure you guys think to your own experiences about how we engage with voices that are outside of our own ethnic, religious class of uh, frameworks. Why do I listen? So much of my podcast listening is a podcast by by black creators and African American creators. Like what what is it that mm-hmm. I find so compelling is because at this moment and for a long time, the stories that they've been telling, the experiences that they're talking about, they're hitting me in a way that is so relevant to now. And I feel so grateful that there are folks that are telling their stories with such confidence and who are telling the stories in a way that challenge my assumptions, you know, and and the show that I want to go to is the show that I listen to. And I sit back and I say, Oh, Malik, You got to, you got to recalibrate here. You think you're all woke Mm -hmm. and you're all progressive and you think you got this thing figured out. And then all of a sudden you hear a conversation that reveals your own inadequacies, your (laughs) own intellectual and spiritual failings. And sometimes your own lack of language and you you realize that there's gaps in your learning and you better better put down whatever you're doing and go read a book, you know, get yourself educated as, as, one of the members of The Last Poets, you know, said on, they, they had this anniversary celebration of the great Harlem, you know, poetry group that emerged during the Black Arts movement. Uh, a few years ago, they, they had this great show at the Apollo where they were celebrating, you know, 50 years of The Last Poets. And, and one of their founding members said, you know, responding to a question from the audience is that, how do I understand the complexity of the world? What do I need to do? What do I need to make happen? And he was just like, read. <laughs> read and everyone was silent he's like are you That's reading funny. are you going <laughs> back and reading those important foundational vital works are you going and engaging with the culture with humility are you sitting at the feet of the women and men who did the hard work before you and are you learning from them and and it's true and it's something that I have to remind myself it's something I have to remind my students is that is that In the organizing work we do, the storytelling work we do, the content production work that we do, in the leadership work that we do, in thinking about the world as we do, there has to be humility. The humility to sit down and learn and the humility first to admit to ourselves when we don't have it all together. When, yeah. when, when the comfortable answer that we've put together is no longer comfortable. Yeah. And, and that's hard. And it becomes harder when we have to sometimes admit that in public. And we have right. to say, no, I don't know. I just don't know. But, you know, in, in the Islamic tradition, we really kind of embraced this, and the classical tradition in particular, because one of the kind of the motifs of the classical tradition are these conversations that that spiritual disciples and adepts and, and seekers of knowledge would have with their teachers. and And we were often told, you know, when I was going through my own sort of spiritual education with my teachers, that... The most powerful statement to hear from a teacher is when the teacher says, La Adri, I don't know. Hmm. That is the most powerful lesson a teacher can teach because a teacher is yeah. saying, I don't know, you don't know, the right. hard work now begins. Right, right. The hard work of knowing now begins. And really, we're in that state all the time, isn't it? We're mm-hmm. always in the state of I don't know because we could know better.
2: Yeah. The, the most skeptical I get is when anyone who claims that they know everything or they have all the answers,
1: like it, that's the first red, first and only red flag. And, you know, I, 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 and I don't know how you guys feel about this, but I think we're in a real dilemma right now, right? Because, you know. Being on a university campus and, and being in the kind of the maelstrom of the of the current debates and conversations, and my heart, my mind, my work swings progressive. And yet I hear my students Often speak and and I and I'm proud of their confidence, you know. But speaking um, at absolutes, speaking in absolutes exactly. is dangerous. Yeah. It's dangerous. It's dangerous. Whatever side of the political spectrum you're on, and this and this idea that because my understanding at this moment, my cogitation of this problem, my piecing together of various disciplines and perspectives has resulted in a particular answer. If you're outside of the boundaries of this answer, I can't deal with you right? You're out. You know, I hate to use the word cancel culture, but there's a kind of an interesting social reality to that. Because I've experienced it recently in our own sort of micro communities, right? Even amongst people who claim wokeness and progressiveness or whatever you want to call it, canceling each other out. And I'm like, is this the way this is going to go? are we going to become dogmatic and ideological when the threat against us and our communities and and, and our peoples together is so great? Is this process of of exclusion from our circles, of those who can't get the words and the concepts in the same order that we got them, going to help us defeat toxic patriarchy and white supremacy and anti-Black racism? Or is there something else that we need to do? And, And for me, I go back to folks like Angela Davis, to folks like Ella Baker, right, who in their organizing methodology told us that learning had to be constant, that dialogue had to be um, a non-negotiable. And I go back to the freedom movement also called the civil rights movement, when in the freedom movement, people who were diametrically opposed to one another in tactic and ideology, when the Stokely Carmichael's could sit with the Martin Kings, when the Ella Bakers could sit with the Fannie Lou Hamers, and they would have these kind of almost meetings, right? They would be able to sit behind closed doors in what the Afghanistan might be called a classical loya jirga, where they put their guns and their swords outside the door and they'd go into the tent. They could yell at each other, scream at each other, disagree with each other. But damn it, they were going to sit in the same room together. They were going to hear one another out. And they were going to offer one another, even if they vociferously disagreed, a modicum or more than a modicum of respect, understanding the role that each was going to play. And I feel like we're in a moment right now where we we need to recapture the spirit of the freedom movement in its ability to create a tent for larger strategic conversation that doesn't ignore where we're coming from. I'm not asking anyone to, to drop their perspectives, but to hear others and find a way strategically forward. We are in a critical moment here. Right And honestly, this critical moment is going to last for the rest of our lives. We're always in a critical moment. It's always like DEFCON 2. It's always 11th hour. That's the nature of the world. If COP26 has taught us anything, we are in real shit. We are in a difficult, difficult situation as a human family. Let alone the social, economic fault lines that are all around us. So, why is it that we do not actively facilitate the spaces? For those of us who believe in a world beyond these oppressions, where's the conversation? And I'm at a loss sometimes, and maybe I'm not saying it. Someone's going to listen. Oh, Malik's got it all wrong. There are those spaces. People are talking. Of course, people are talking. Of course, people are meeting. But now we need to up that game. And part of that game needs to be we need to be compassionate with one another. We need to be compassionate with one another. We need to hear one another. We need to understand sometimes the depth of where disagreement is coming from. And I can still vociferously disagree with someone, but that sense of compassion humanizes. It's what James Baldwin told us. You know, I read a lot of Baldwin over the last few years. I took an incredible class here at Yale, and it just, hit. you know, I I go back to Baldwin all the time, you know. Mm -hmm. Baldwin was concerned, in, in my reading of Baldwin, was concerned about two things, love and death. That's what Baldwin, you can you could probably simmer Baldwin down to love and death. He was like, our inability to love one another, and he said, love the deepest part of the other person is an inability for us to love ourselves. That love he said was painful. Yeah. He said it would efface us, it would put us to the fire. That was the fire this time before the fire next time. Baldwin was saying, you got to go to the fire now because if you are driven by love, it's a fire and it's going mm. to burn you from the inside out, but you got to pass through it in order to get to, to that place where, where it's no longer necessary. And the other thing Baldwin was concerned about was death. And in that famous statement, you know, Baldwin talks about life And the gift of life is all about our cognizance of death. And he actually called out religious institutions. He says temples and and mosques and, and churches and our institutions of politics and economics. These are all spaces where we want to forget about death. He says, but death is the only thing that we have. It's that final journey into that terrifying beyond that makes life so precious. And if we don't remind ourselves of that constantly, then life just happens. And that, to be honest, guys, connects with what I read from the Sufi teachers, right? It's what the Prophet Muhammad said, remember death often. We were told by our teachers remember death often. When I first used to hear that, I used to think that's awfully macabre, you know? That's it's an awful macabre thing to say to a kid or a young person think about death and dying. Right? As I've grown older, I'm like, that's so true. I mean, I'm in a situation right now where we have dying elders, where we have parents who are terribly ill. We're thinking about, I'm thinking about death all the time. I've had my closest friends, some of my closest mentors, pass away during this COVID period. I'm thinking about death a lot. Death's felt very close over these last two years. It's felt like it's it's hanging outside my door. You know, there's actually a
2: quote out of the Bhutan where, or maybe it's a, just a belief that contemplating death five times a day actually brings happiness thinking about the finite it's kind really? of
1: to, to get cliché it's carpe diem that's huh. that's a, such a that's such a beautiful idea it's it's true i and i connect with the five times a day cuz if i'm praying five times a day no doubt five times a day I <laughs> you I'm, you yeah. guys have it baked into your into your I'm, system
2: and your process i'm bring
1: i'm bringing yeah. to mind the thing that will end all desires that things that will and that makes life so precious you know i think about the illness that that both Farina and, and my parents are, are going through. And I really think about, wow, you know, what a blessing every day like, to have that gift of life, right? And how that begins to change and to adapt and in so many subtle and not so subtle ways, direct our work, right? Direct our living, direct the way we are. Baldwin certainly was telling us something that, you know, is, is affirmed by the great wisdom traditions, of the past and and the now. And yet, isn't it also true that in our current political conversations and our current conversations about the social fracture and so on, We do contend with death, but the reality of institutionalized death in particular, the reality of the carceral state, the reality of police brutality, the reality of of an economics that drives people to despair and to death because they don't have access to health care, because they are forced to live in conditions that are inhuman. Shouldn't our response to that be that we affirm life and it is for life that we do the work that we do?
0: That's beautiful. That's so beautiful. And I feel like you have, you've taken us on this entire journey, Abdul. We've kind of, we've gone all over and you are so deep and literally I'm sitting here and thinking I could be here forever.
2: (laughs) Sharon, come on. Yeah, I know.
0: Life is finite. Death is finite. All of it. I think it's time now though for speed round. I don't know if Abdul can handle
1: speed round, Abdul. (laughs) I, I don't know. Okay, I'll, I'll try, guys. I'll try. I'm, I'm, I'm game. I'm game for anything.
0: <laughs> Let's see where this goes. Ready? I'm ready. What is one thing about you that no one expects?
1: Oh wow! I really love eighties pop music. Oh Prove I'm it. Give, give me a
2: band. Give, me, give yeah, me a band. Yeah. Who's your favorite artist?
1: <laughs> I have to say I've been listening to REM a lot lately. But 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 I also love like early '80s Madonna. And, and another day I'll tell you about my experience of meeting Madame Madonna herself. Nice.
2: I'm more of a police guy myself. Ah, <laughs> yeah. I love the police too. <laughs> What's what is a book or a movie that has characters that
1: you relate to? You know, I love Dead Poets Society. And in fact, mm. I have to tell you, I I became a teacher accidentally. I was a, I was a history and drama teacher in high school for, for five years. And I have to say, I learned more from Robin Williams in Dead Poet Society than I did at Teachers College about teaching.
2: That checks out. <laughs> <laughs>
0: That's fair. That's fair. What is your favorite mom dish?
1: Oh, ho, ho, ho. my one, of, my favorite mom dish is is shalgam gosht, which is a turnips with meat in a incredibly spicy curry stew. And I, I have to say, yeah, sometimes I just kind of sit back and I dream about it because I've had it elsewhere, but the way my mom makes it, yeah, it it's sounds love. amazing. It's love, love,
2: yeah. What's your least favorite food?
1: Ooh. That's a really good question. I am so like kind of generally open, but you know what I don't like? I don't like like j- jelly jelly gummy things huh. you know people like like gummy bears and things like yeah. that There's yeah. just something about that gummy taste in my mouth that I, I just I've never really gotten into which is why my son eats all the starburst and gummy bears and stuff that right. comes, <laughs> comes into the house
0: <laughs> uh who is someone out there that you'd want to chat with on a podcast I bet you have a very long list
1: I do <laughs> I'll put it out there Maharshala Ali is is very high on my list, and the jazz great Amajamal Jamal are are the two right at the right at the top that I'd love to sit down and have a coffee with and, and turn on the recorder. What does being a modern minority mean to you? It's to live expansively into our past and into our future. It's to recognize the superpowers we have that have been given to us because we've been othered. It's the possibilities that come from recognizing that you've moved once and you'll move again. It's that ability to have two feet in four places at the same time. It's the ability to hear one language out of your right ear and one language out of your left ear and then process it in a third language in your head and for all that to make sense. It's the ability to be in the world, anywhere in the world, and find a way to connect to the people around you because you're aware. Of of literature and geography and and, and history and travel, I, I love that that to step into a cab in any great city of the world and strike up a conversation and by the end of it have a relationship with that person on something or to meet someone and that happens because we've in some ways been minoritized because our ancestors moved because we live in this kind of oh this this rich. This rich ecosystem, we've been raised this rich ecosystem of languages and foods and and cultures and and, and beliefs. I wouldn't want it any other way, you know i I, I often think what would have been like God's like if God really wanted to test me, he wouldn't have made me brown. <laughs> I like being who I am and I like mm. having this history that I have. And growing up, you know there was always that thing right and and we spoke about it with our friends. What would it like to be white? Let's be honest, right? But yeah. What if we were white people? What would it be like? How would our lives be different?
2: So many thoughts in, in a good way. Abdulrahman, I've been looking forward to this conversation for so long, and I'm glad we finally have it. And I hope
1: it's the first of many. I hope so, too. And I, what, what both of you do with this show is is really remarkable. And there's a poignancy to the, to the conversations. And as I've been listening to your shows, you know, each one at the end of it, it I, I don't binge listen to your show. And it's precisely because when I get to the end of the conversation, I have to stop because there's so much to process and there's so much to think about. And there's so many challenging things that come up, sometimes even just for a moment, right? Someone will say something or you guys will respond with a question. You'll raise something up and then you'll leave it and you'll move on to something else. And I'm still there. Even at the end of the show, I'm like, no, I got to go. I, I, what was that that I wanted to explore? <laughs> you get part two, you get them on your show then. <laughs> yes, that's no, absolutely. I, I won't lie. I have gone through the list. I'm like, oh, there's so many good people here. We got to yeah. put in it invita- We've got to put in invitations. And it's nice to also hear a number of friends who've been yeah, on the show. Friends absolutely. like Az- Azar Asraman and, and and others. And it's been it's always fun listening to folks that, that you know. And you really bring out things that are, are revelatory to me as folks who know them. So thank you, thank thank you to both of you for doing this and for making it happen.
2: I've been running Segal. And I'm
0: still Sharon Lee Tony.
2: Remember, we're all modern minorities out there.
0: We'll talk to you soon.
3: Holy potluck. Potluck. potluck, It's happening daily.